A warm welcome to First Move. I'm Max Foster in for Julia Chatterley just ahead on today's show. India in mourning. More than 270 people confirmed dead and more than 1,000 injured after Friday's devastating train collision. Authorities have stopped looking for survivors. They say a signal failure may be to blame. The very latest on the investigation just ahead. Plus, Ukraine military setback. Uh, Russia claims to have uh, repelled a major offensive in the Donetsk region, saying hundreds of Ukrainian troops have been killed. Ukraine says it has no information to back up Russian claims. We'll have a live report. And crude on the move. Oil rising after Saudi Arabia's surprise decision to cut production by a million barrels a day. The Saudis are going it alone without other OPEC partners. Uh, Some expert analysis for you just ahead. On the global markets, futures are pointing to a subdued start in the U.S. trading week after last week's across-the-board gains, driven in part by a solid U.S. jobs report and the deal to raise the U.S. debt ceiling. European stocks are trading a bit mixed, though, today. Uh, Energy companies among the big winners after Saudi Arabia's expected production cut. Exxon, Chevron and other U.S. producers are higher Pre-market, a busy hour ahead. We'll begin with the latest, though, from Ukraine, because Russia claiming its forces stopped a large Ukrainian offensive in the Donetsk region and killed 250 troops. Moscow is releasing this video, purportedly showing Ukrainian armoured vehicles uh, coming under fire, but Kyiv says it has no information about any such battle. Meanwhile, sources telling CNN that Ukraine has cultivated a network of anti-Kremlin agents inside Russia and provided them with drones. Claire Sebastian joins us. Uh, people talk about the spring offensive potentially starting today. I mean, what, how do you read all of these movements? Well, we don't know. Russia is the only one at the moment talking about this major, they're calling large-scale offensive in the Donetsk region. That video, I don't think, is conclusive evidence of anything. Frankly, it's blurry. You can't tell what's being uh, blown up. And Ukraine is saying we have no information on this. And separately today, we've had two warnings, two separate warnings from the Ukrainian side about a ramp up in Russian disinformation ahead of this counteroffensive. The uh, strategic communications for the armed forces saying Russia is planning to intensify the spread of false information. They'll disseminate false information, they're saying, about the counteroffensive, even if there is no counteroffensive. Uh, and then another pre- presidential advisor, Mikhail Podolyak, saying Moscow is already actively involved in repelling a global offensive that does not yet exist. So they're saying the counteroffensive hasn't started. They have all along, though, said they're not going to sort of cut a ribbon. Mm. They're not going to fire a starting gun. It's not going to be uh, 100% clear. Uh, and it is. it does seem that there is activity both sort of on the eastern front and on the southern front uh, where another pro-Russian official in Zaporizhia has said on Sunday that they repelled uh, a potential Ukrainian advance and is talking about uh, more incidents today, Max. And meanwhile, the threat within Russia seems to be increasing, according to these sources telling us, this network of anti-Kremlin agents inside the country? Yeah, I think this really underscores, this coming from uh, officials in the US with knowledge of US intelligence, underscores the sort of grey factions within this war that's not sort of clear-cut Ukraine versus Russia. I think that sort of shows the the proximity both ethnically and culturally of these two countries before this war. There is some side-switching going on. Uh, And we're hearing from these sources that they believe that Ukraine has been building up this network of saboteurs really over the last year, and the culmination of that has been over the last month. In particular, you see the video, uh, the drone attack on the Kremlin, which they do now attribute uh, to these so-called agents within Russia. Crucially, they're saying they don't think they've been provided with US-made drones, that it was Ukrainian-made drones. And uh, the Ukrainian side, having been asked to comment on this, very cryptically saying, you know, we're not going to comment on what they call cotton, which is slang for explosions, uh, until after their victory, but saying that it will continue. Okay, Claire, thank you. 
Meanwhile, the top U.S. military officer saying Ukraine is well prepared for a counteroffensive. General Mark Milley, chairman of the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff, had an exclusive interview with CNN's Oren Liebman in France ahead of tomorrow's 79th anniversary of D-Day. Oren joins us now from uh, Normandy. Take us through what you discussed, Oren. Max, this was a wide-ranging interview that first covered why we're here in Normandy 79 years after the D-Day invasion. We certainly talked some about that, his personal feelings, his professional feelings being here. He's been here before, but the significance it still has for him. We certainly talked about China as well as some of the domestic issues in the U.S. the military faces. But, of course, much of the interview itself focused on Ukraine as we anticipate this counteroffensive here and wait to see when it begins. He has closely watched this war for the last year and a half or so, really, ever since it began. And even before that, our question to him was, are they prepared and how do you know they will be successful? He was very careful in his answer here, worrying not to predict how battles play out because of how complex that is to know. Here's what he had to say. So I think it's too early to tell uh, what outcomes are going to happen. I think the Ukrainians are very well prepared, as you know very well, the United States and other allied countries in Europe and, and really around the world have provided training and ammunition and advice intelligence, etc., to the Ukrainians. We're supporting them. Uh, they're in a, a war that's an existential threat for the very survival of Ukraine uh, and it has greater meaning to the rest of the world uh, for, for Europe, uh, really for the United States, uh, but also for, uh, for, for the globe. In speaking about current operations, what we're seeing, what you just talked about, Max, we also asked about the attacks we're seeing inside Russia, and does that escalate or risk the possibility of an escalation with Russia? He acknowledged that, yes, it could risk an escalation with Russia, and it's up to Russia how they choose to respond, something the U.S. is watching very closely. But then he made a distinction here. An escalation of Russia in Ukraine is one thing. The U.S. has been watching this and knows how to handle this, taking it as it comes and keeping an eye on the different dynamics there in that situation. But escalation outside of Ukraine, whether that's in another part of Europe, against NATO in the Middle East, that would put this in an entirely different ballgame completely, he says. Max? Uh, what about tensions between the U.S. and China? So we certainly spoke about China as well, especially days after an encounter between uh, the U.S. and the Chinese navies at sea in the Taiwan Strait, one of the most sensitive areas for China. We focused on the question of communication. Where are they on reestablishing communications between or at the higher levels of the militaries between the U.S. and China? For him, he simply stressed the need. For, uh, to resume communications and to keep that going because it is the ability to have dialogue, especially especially with tensions high as we're seeing them now, that makes sure that the relationship between Beijing and Washington stays in the realm of competition and doesn't veer towards conflict. Max. Okay. Oren, thank you for bringing us that. Now, an investigation into the cause of India's worst rail crash this century has begun. At least 275 people were killed and more than 1,000 injured when three trains collided in the state of Odisha on Friday. Authorities say they've identified more than 150 bodies. On the tracks where the crash happened, trains have started running again. Uh, Ivan Watson reports. Working on the railroad. An army of laborers laying new rail by hand. Racing to reopen this transport route after one of the deadliest train disasters India has seen in its modern history. Uh, on Friday night, three trains collided in this area and everywhere on the side of the tracks in this rural part of eastern India, uh, there are massive railroad cars uh, that were uh, 
as you can see, severely damaged in this collision. This vehicle here, this car, uh, was reserved for people with disabilities. You can still see uh, people's personal belongings uh, down below, right outside. It began with a passenger train moving at 128 kilometers or 80 miles per hour, slamming into a parked freight train, colliding after dark in this rural area. Villagers rescued passengers by the light of their cell phones. Did you actually, as volunteers, pull survivors from the train wagons? Yes, yes. Uh, uh, on the worst hit train wagon, where I, I told the other uh, guys to put the mobile light, I entered into it. It was no space, literally, because it was so inclined that everybody was male, female, everyone was dumped at a place. So we had to pull them very carefully. We pulled them out. Few were alive, we just separated them. Few were dead, so we have to don't have to waste the time. Crowds of volunteers gather outside local hospitals. Local reporters interviewing a crash survivor being transferred for treatment. Among the crowd here, a worried mother. She's still searching for her missing son, who was a passenger on the train. Inside the hospital, some of the more than 1,000 injured in the crash. The road to recovery may not be easy. This 52-year-old farmer in so much pain, he can't lie down. I'm blessed to have another chance at life, says Manto Kumar. The 32-year-old said the collision felt like an earthquake. Afterwards, I took my shirt and wrapped it around my head and started looking for my friends, he says. Kumar says he shared an ambulance with his friend who lost both legs and later died. The Indian government launched an investigation into this disaster and vows to punish anyone responsible. The pressure is on to ensure a catastrophe like this never happens again. Ivan Watson, CNN, in Orisha State, in eastern India. The U.S. Navy has released a video of the near collision between Chinese and U.S. warships in the Taiwan Strait that Oren was talking about. It says it shows unsafe interaction as a Chinese ship sails directly in front of an American destroyer over the weekend. Uh, the U.S. military says the ships were just under 140 metres apart. Meanwhile, Beijing claims the U.S. provoked that incident. Anna Corrin joins me now uh, from Hong Kong. Um, I mean, when you consider the scale of these you know, vessels, it is incredibly close. Uh, they can't manoeuvre that quickly usually. No, absolutely. I mean, it's a catastrophe waiting to happen. And, you know, near misses like this one, Max, could lead to an accident and then it's a crisis. And this is something the U.S. says it desperately wants to avoid. As you see from the footage, you know, this happened on Saturday. The USS Chung Hoon and Canada's HMCS Montreal, they were transiting through the Taiwan Strait when that Chinese vessel cut in front of the U.S. destroyer, carrying out what U.S. officials say was, quote, unsafe, an unsafe manoeuvre. Uh, the U.S. Uh, destroyer was forced to slow down to avoid a collision, as you can see from that uh, video released by the U.S. Navy. And it's no surprise that China is blaming uh, the U.S. Within hours of the incident, China's defence minister accused the U.S. of provocation and creating chaos in the region. And a few hours ago, we heard from the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Let's have a listen to the spokesman. 
The truth is that the United States is provoking trouble first, and China is dealing with it in accordance with laws and regulations. The actions taken by the Chinese military are necessary measures to deal with the provocations of certain countries, and they are reasonable, legal, safe, and professional. Max, some analysts believe that this is the first time that such a close encounter has occurred during a U.S. Navy transit of the Taiwan Strait. Now, the backdrop to all of this over the weekend was the Shangri-La dialogue in Singapore, where it was hoped that the U.S. Defense Secretary would meet with his Chinese counterpart to you know, try and decrease the, the tension. But all they got was an awkward handshake after the Chinese rejected a private uh, meeting. The U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin had firm words for China, saying that Washington would not accept coercion and bullying of allies and partners and, and cautioned the Chinese military against, quote, unprofessional intercepts by warplanes over the South China Sea following that close encounter with the U.S. jet just two weeks ago. Uh, Chinese uh, defense minister, uh, well, he responded by accusing the U.S. without naming it of meddling in other countries' internal affairs and building up excessive military alliances in the Asia Pacific. But, you know, Max, despite all this rhetoric and, and near misses, the Biden administration remains hopeful that there could be a potential thaw in U.S.-China relations, that a meeting between President Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping could happen in the near future, Max. OK. Anna in Hong Kong, thank you. U.S. investigators want to know why a small civilian plane flew close to the U.S. Capitol building on Sunday, then crashed. All four people on board died. The U.S. scrambled fighter jets to intercept it, in the process creating a sonic boom over D.C. Brian Todd has the details. It was the boom heard far and wide across the Washington, D.C. region, disrupting a Sunday music rehearsal and sending people and pets running for cover. The cause? U.S. 16 fighter jets scrambled to reach a Cessna Citation private jet, unresponsive and flying through tightly controlled Washington, D.C. airspace. According to FlightAware, the civilian aircraft took off from Elizabethton Municipal Airport in Elizabethton, Tennessee at 1.13 p.m. and was bound for Long Island MacArthur Airport in New York. The plane, with four people on board, then turned around over Long Island, heading back over the Washington, D.C. area nearly two hours after it originally took off. That's when NORAD scrambled the F-16s, who were authorized to travel in supersonic speeds in pursuit of the jet. According to a news release from the Continental U.S. North American Aerospace Defense Command region, the pilot of the civilian aircraft was unresponsive as the F-16 fighter jets attempted to make contact. At one point, according to the statement, the F-16s used flares in an attempt to draw attention from the pilot. The Cessna 560 Citation 5, traveling more than 300 miles off course, going off radar at 3.23 p.m. and ultimately crashing in a rural, mountainous terrain near George Washington National Forest near Charlottesville, Virginia. Late Sunday, according to a statement from Virginia State Police, first responders reached the crash site by foot but found no survivors. According to FAA records, that private jet was registered to a company called Encore Motors out of Melbourne, Florida, owned by Barbara and John Rumpel. They told the Washington Post that their family members were on board, including their daughter, a grandchild, and her nanny. They told the New York Times that the family was returning to their home in East Hampton, New York, from another family home in North Carolina, and that their granddaughter is two years old. Brian Todd, CNN, Greenville, Virginia.
Uh, Prince Harry has been accused of wasting time after suddenly delaying his much-anticipated court appearance. He had been due to give evidence at the British High Court in his case against the newspaper group uh, that he accuses of phone hacking. The prince's lawyer blamed his tricky travel and security arrangements. Nader Bashir is uh, outside London's High Court. There was a suggestion that he wouldn't arrive today, but actually, you know, the, there were people in court, including the judge, that expected to see him every day this week whilst the, his part of the trial was taking place. Mm-hmm. And defence lawyers have uh, said in the earlier hours that they found it extraordinary that Prince Harry was not present for the first of what is said to be three days of the court considering this case, which of course has been put forward by more than 100 claimants. But Prince Harry uh, was selected as four of one of the four representative uh, claimants to provide evidence in this hearing to be present for that cross-examination. Of course, today is the first day of that hearing. We are expecting it to be focused mainly uh, on those opening statements. It was suggested that he uh, arrived late last night, uh, or rather departed from the US overnight. It was, of course, uh, his daughter Lilibet's second birthday yesterday. He is expected to be present in court tomorrow to provide uh, evidence. And this is, of course, a hugely significant uh, hearing for Prince Harry. It is a matter that is deeply important, deeply personal to him. He has long been very, very vocal uh, on the intrusion of the media, not only his life, but that of his family as a whole, and in particular, that of his late mother, Princess Diana. Now, according uh, to his representatives who are present in court today, they have submitted some 147 articles dating back from the 90s into uh, 2011, which they say provide evidence of the media organization, Mirror Group newspapers, uh, using unlawful means to obtain uh, private personal information in order to publish as part of these stories. Now, according to his legal representatives, these details include conversations, arguments with his brother, Prince William, uh, details around his previous relationship with former girlfriend, Chelsea Davy, as well as uh, his activities, his whereabouts while he was doing military training at Sandhurst. Now, according to his legal defence team, they believe that that this information was obtained through illegal means, including, of course, phone hacking, which has been a core focus uh, of this hearing, but also through intercepting his voicemails and through hiring uh, private investigators, amongst other illegal methods. Now, of course, Mirror Group newspapers has contested these allegations. They say their senior editors were not aware of any wrongdoing at the time and also that some of these claims have simply been put forward uh, too late. But for Prince Harry, he doesn't wish to settle this claim. He wants to see this through uh, in the courts. This is a hugely important personal matter. We've seen him over the last uh, couple of months and years being very vocal about this, not only in his uh, recent, uh, in his book, Spare, in the Netflix documentary he released alongside his wife, Meghan, the Duchess of Sussex. But this is something that he has uh, repeatedly been vocal about in his search for privacy away from the royal family in his search alongside the Duchess of Sussex to, in their words, reclaim the narrative uh, that has been drawn around them and their uh, family. So we do expect to hear from him tomorrow. This will be uh, a hugely different environment to what we're used to seeing Prince Harry in, of course. Uh, We've seen him speaking to journalists, speaking to people he knows uh, in a comfortable environment in which oftentimes uh, he has been played a huge part in shaping uh, that environment. This time, we will see him appearing in court under cross-examination, giving evidence, but also uh, facing questions from defence lawyers. Max? Okay, Nada Bashir, outside the High Court in London. Thank you. Straight ahead on First Move, are higher gas prices on the way? Saudi Arabia says it's slashing output. A bit more on that. And later, uh, airlines soaring back into the black. 
We're live at the IATA conference where they're predicting billions of dollars of profits this year. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A stunning number this weekend in the U.S. At least 95 people died from shootings, according to the Gun Violence Archive. Some doctors now say gun violence is like a deadly plague in America and children are often the victims of this disease. Soon as Josh Campbell has the story. This is the number one cause of death of American children, which is just unacceptable and astonishing. Those on the front line saving children's lives fed up with America's gun violence epidemic. To you, gun violence is a disease. Yes, and the country is the victim in this case. The outrage felt by pediatrician Dr. Nicole Webb on display across the country this past weekend as demonstrators took to the streets demanding an end to the endless gun violence ravaging the nation. Enough is enough. Let's take it upon ourselves to inspire action so that students across the country can worry about homework and tests, not gun violence. National Gun Violence Awareness Day began after the brutal killing of 15-year-old Hadia Pendleton on a Chicago playground in 2013. Murdered one week after marching with her school's band in a parade celebrating Barack Obama's second presidential inauguration. Pendleton's mother speaking out. There have been thousands of other you know, families that unfortunately have joined this fraternity that no one wants to be a part. But tens of thousands more have been impacted since her daughter's death. More than 18,000 people have been shot and killed so far this year. The federal government calling gun violence a public health crisis. And while guns are often politically polarizing, most Americans surveyed in a recent CNN poll agree gun control laws should be stricter. American health professionals say common sense evidence-based safety efforts should not be partisan at all. States with red flag laws see fewer high-profile mass shootings. States that have closed loopholes in the background check system see fewer um, shootings involving illegally obtained weapons. A recent troubling trend, guns in the hands of children. In recent weeks, at least nine teens arrested for bringing guns on campus, including a Phoenix student arrested with an AR-15. The most helpful thing anyone can do is store their weapons securely. Your child may be comfortable around the gun. It may even be something that you purchased as a gift. It may be something that's really important to your family. Um, they have a bad day at school. Um, they're feeling down and, you know, they make a decision that um, they can't recover from. But even basic evidence-based safety efforts have drawn the ire of America's gun lobby. The NRA said in this tweet that someone should tell self-important anti-gun doctors to stay in their lane. 
How do you respond to that? The only lane that matters is safety. Every American citizen should be free to live their life without the fear that they might be shot to death. Are you anti-gun? No, I'm not. Anyone who's actually really interested in what is going to keep a majority of people safe is not going to take that approach. And while major national reforms remain stalled, the killing continues. Doctors have a grim analogy. The story goes, somebody's sort of sitting, um, having a picnic by the river, and you start noticing a body floating down, you know, stream. So you fish it out and, you know, you resuscitate that person. And then a few minutes later, there's another one and another one. Pretty quickly, you stop trying to fish the bodies out of the river, and you go upstream and try to figure out why they're ending up in the river in the first place. So we know gun violence is preventable, and yet we keep focusing on treating the aftermath. Josh Campbell, CNN, Los Angeles. Coming up on live report from Kiev for the very latest on the Ukrainian front line. Plus, the country's former defense minister joins us live next. Let's go back to our top story. The Russian military claiming it has stopped a major Ukrainian offensive in the Donetsk region and killed 250 troops. Ukraine says it doesn't have any information about the battle. Meanwhile, sources tell CNN Kyiv has cultivated a network of saboteurs inside Russia and provided them with drones. Fred Plotkin joins us uh, now live. Uh, what are your thoughts on what happened with this, you know, counter-action and costing 250 troops? Yeah, this, this alleged attack, you know, it's very difficult to say, Max. I mean, one of the things that the Russians did put forward uh, was a drone video that did seem to show uh, armored vehicles advancing through some fields. It appears as though in that video that some of those armored vehicles might be hitting landmines or something of that sort, and that some of them may have been hit by artillery shells as well. It's very difficult to um, ascertain how many vehicles may have been uh, taken out and what the sort of damage would have been. And you're absolutely right. Of course, the Ukrainians at this point in time are saying that they have no information about this and they're not commenting on this either. It's something that we've been talking about. The Ukrainians this weekend put out a video specifically saying they were not going to make an announcement when their big counteroffensive begins. One of the interesting things that we've heard since then, though, Max, is that a governor from that region, a Russian-installed official from that region, I should say, um, was saying that there was was another attack by Ukrainian forces this morning. He said it was larger in scale, and he says that he believes the Ukrainians are trying to make it all the way to the Sea of Azov. And of course, if they did make that, they would be able to cut off the land corridor that the Russians currently hold um, between Russian territory and Crimea. So that would be a big deal. But it certainly seems if anything is going on, it is still very much in the, the early stages. So the Russians are saying right now at this point in time, they are hanging on the Ukrainians for their part, simply saying nothing at all. One of the interesting things that we did hear, though, over the weekend was the Ukrainian president Volodymyr Zelensky come out and say that he he believed that Ukrainian forces are now ready for a counteroffensive. He said that it would probably take a very long time, but he did believe that in the end it would be successful. And it also comes, Max, as we're seeing across the front lines here in Ukraine, but also, of course, with those actions on Russian territory. Right now, the Russians really very much on the back foot. Yeah, what do you make of this? With getting this from U.S. sources, aren't we? That there's a network of Russians who are coordin mm. in Russia coordinating with the Ukrainian military. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's certainly something that is that is very interesting to see and something that it appears as though the Russians sort of had been hinting at and the Ukrainians um, hadn't been hinting at, but certainly it seems as though something that, that is uh, quite possible. And we had that drone attack on the Kremlin where it was really uh, unclear who was behind that. Of course, we then heard from U.S. Uh, sources that uh, you know they had initial um, uh, thoughts that the Ukrainians could be behind it because of some of the things that they had intercepted. But it really was a preliminary uh, conclusion and certainly not one that was definitive at all. However, one of the things that does seem clear is that the Russians are being put under a lot of pressure right now on Russian territory. You then had that drone attack last week uh, on Moscow, uh, which uh, the Russians blamed on the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians once again saying that they had no uh, nothing to do uh, with that. But certainly it could very well be the case that there are operatives inside Russia um, that are causing problems, not just for the Russian military, but in, in general for Russian politics and sort of trying to destabilize the situation there. And I think one of the things you know, that we've heard that has been key about all that is that we did have last week Vladimir Putin come out and say that there were forces, as he put it, who were trying to destabilize the country. So clearly the Russians are aware of this. The Russians are concerned about this. Whether or not there are operatives inside Russia who are working for the Ukrainians is one thing. But certainly the Russians right now very much concerned about the situation within their own country and about the stability, not just in those border areas, but in Moscow as well, Max. Fred, thank you. Uh, for more on this, let's go to the former Ukrainian defense minister, Andrei Zagorodnyuk, uh, joining us. He's chairman of the Ukrainian think tank Center for Defense Strategies. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, what, you. Do you, what do you make of this line that we've got from the Russians and the short bit of videos showing uh, what they say is their efforts to stop a Ukrainian offensive and Ukraine not saying anything about that? Uh, well, there will be a comments about this from what we know uh, soon. But at the same time, uh, obviously, Russians are trying to um, inflate the situation, like their actions and uh, and, and, and overall situation. So uh, there's been some activities along the line of contact and along the front line in different locations. Um, we certainly cannot call this, this is it. This is like the major counteroffensive starting. At the same time, yes, there would be the, there would be the activities and uh, and they actually honestly they took place for some time uh there's been a different uh, military efforts uh, by ukraine and by russia in different periods of time and some of them ended with the with the with the success and some of them didn't and uh, and so basically like the inflation of the meaning of this is uh, is what russians are trying to do i certainly can say from my our sources of our organization that the numbers which they provided about the casualties are extremely inflated. That's that's what we know already. Um, so I don't think that's that's the case. Yeah. So something happened. It wasn't as bad as the Russians are saying. That's what you're suggesting. No. And can you tell us that the the video you've probably seen it that we've got from the Russians of vehicles being blown up? Is that accurate? Is that does that relate um, to this well, event? I obviously cannot confirm the accuracy of the video, but certainly the video doesn't show any major any major offensive uh, strategic level operations. That's uh, for might, sure. Might this be the Ukrainians just testing Russian defenses ahead of the uh, big wider offensive that we're expecting? Uh, it certainly could be a correction in the front lines. It could be testing, and it could be uh, and it also could be local operations of not being a part of the wider strategic effort. Uh, yes, yeah, so it could be all that, and uh, certainly, um, certainly, again, uh, what Russians trying to to show is that they prevented something very large from happening. But most likely, that if if any large operation starts, it's obviously not going to be like uh, um, having a, 
uh, it, it could be either from the collection of different efforts and then the, the uh, armed forces of Ukraine will see where they could be more successful and then focus their uh, their attention there. That's most likely how it's going to happen in the future. So we can see uh, some preparation, we can see some probing, we can see some testing, we can see some local uh, tactical level operations, uh, all at the same time. Uh, absolutely. And what about the network that we're hearing from U.S. sources? I don't know if you're hearing the same thing, that there's a, a network of Russians within Russia who are working with the Ukrainians against the Russian military. And they're being uh, well, armed with drones. As, as obviously we, we wouldn't, uh, you know, anybody would confirm that even if that, that would, was the case because for, for the nature of such, uh, such activity. But we, what we can certainly confirm is that there is a lot of Russians currently who are unhappy with the Russian policy. There's a lot of Russians who know that, uh, uh, the, the whole war from Russian side is going to fail and it's not succeeding. They see that uh, Russian offensive in January didn't succeed. They see it like they're panicking right now about Ukrainian counteroffensive um, and so on and so on. So certainly there is a lot of distrust among Russians to their uh, government and it just increases. Um, I think we'll see more future, more, more operations like that. I, will, I think we'll see more and more Russians joining against Putin's regime in the future. That's for sure. Is is the danger that if the conflict spreads more widely within Russia, that then it changes the whole dynamic and it's very hard for Western nations and NATO nations to support Ukraine, which may be, you know, it's seen as a more offensive strategy, obviously going into Russia as opposed to uh, defending Ukrainian territory? Uh, first of all, I don't think that uh, we have a critical mass of people in Russia happy to... To go against Putin regime right now, that it turns into a large civil war or anything like this. Uh, no analysis so far gives us any evidence that we're, we're there. I think there will be more Russians unhappy and I think that will be more Russians trying to do something to stop their basically criminal regime to from doing what they're doing. But I, I don't think we're there in the terms of critical mass. At the same time, we cannot really say that, you know, we're going to be preventing Ukraine from uh, achieving success. Uh, by actually making Russia more stable, because that's 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 uh, in any case that's not going to happen. I mean, Russia is 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 going. It, it basically Russians are deciding their future themselves, and uh, what what they're doing is, is what the government is doing is deeply you know uh, illegal and it's horrible from a moral perspective and so on. And I'm sure that there will be lots of people there will understand that and will try to do something about that. Andre Zagorodnya, thank you very much indeed for joining us with your insight, former uh, Ukrainian defence minister. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, coming up after the break, the post-pandemic travel boom is helping lift the world's airlines. But how long will it last? We're live at the meeting of air industry leaders in Turkey. Next. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protest that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app.
Uh, welcome back to First Move. Uh, U.S. stocks up and running this Monday. The major averages are mostly higher after the best week on Wall Street in two months. Uh, chalk that up to the U.S. debt ceiling agreement and uh, Friday's solid jobs report as well. Uh, shares of global oil companies are among the early session winners after the Saudi government uh, said that it would cut production by some 1 million barrels of oil a day. Uh, the move intended to help support oil prices during this time of global economic uncertainty. Meanwhile, the Turkish currency is under pressure again. The US dollar is currently up more than half a percent against the lira. That's despite the appointment of over, over the weekend of a well-respected new finance minister. Uh, the appointment is seen as a sign that President Erdogan is ready to pivot to a more orthodox economic policy in his new term. The world's airlines are en route to a $10 billion profit this year, despite the global economic meltdown. The estimate came from the annual meeting of the International Air Transport Association, or IATA. Its director general says the rebound has been helped by low prices for jet fuel, China reopening and higher cargo revenues as well. Willie Walsh told Richard Quest he doesn't think we'll see a repeat of last year's chaos at European hubs. Well, it certainly told last year with the disruption that we saw in many of the European hubs. Um, I think in, in a lot of cases we should avoid that this year. But some of the problems that we didn't face last year we'll face this year, principally air traffic control. Uh, so, you know, there are concerns about uh, the U.S. and we've already seen capacity reductions because they know they don't have sufficient resources. Uh, we're seeing uh, already in Europe delays three, four times what we were expecting. So I think ATC is going to be a big factor this year. And the other thing that's playing uh, on the industry, which didn't have as big an impact last year, are the problems with suppliers. There's a variety of issues. Uh, certainly the U.S. has had some very troubling uh, runway incursion issues and they cannot supply enough air traffic control. Yeah. But you're getting a similar sort of situation in Europe with strikes. Yeah, it's exactly it. So in, in, in Europe, the resources are there, but the issue that we face, particularly from an ATC point of view, is French air traffic control going on strike every day. Uh, and when France goes on strike, it disrupts traffic right across Europe. The Minister of Transport in France, when I interviewed him on this point, didn't seem to give any ground. He didn't seem to think, suggest that this was the big issue. No, it is the big issue. And, you know, anybody, he, wasn't going to change. he wasn't going to change the law. No, they're not going to change. And we, we've known that for some time. Uh, you know, what we've been pushing for is you know, for France to facilitate overflights. So if, friend, if, if the French want to shut their country down, fine. You know, let them shut their country down. But it's the idea that they can shut Europe down that is causing problems. Because once France goes on strike, you can't overfly the country. And then it's putting pressure on air traffic control systems around France. And that's causing delays and cancellations in other areas. So it's chaos. You're not going to get high altitude overflight exemptions either? Well, I think in time we will. Uh, because I, I think in time we can demonstrate that this situation is, is just unacceptable. There's no reason for people to disrupt uh, flights that are going from Ireland to Spain. You know, why do the French want to disrupt that? Because that's disrupting Europe. And, and that is That's unfair. the whole point of industrial no, action. No, it's not. It's, no, the industrial action is to disrupt things in France. 
They're, they're annoyed with what's happening in France. You put, they you love look, Europe. You put as much pain in as many places. That's in point of living. No, we, no we, have to, we have to get this uh, sorted out because uh, you know, the environmental impact alone, I think, gives justification to address this overflight issue. Because the flights are operating. They're just operating around France, extending the distance they have to fly, burning more fuel, producing more CO2. And that has to be addressed. Uh, Anna uh, is at the meeting in Istanbul. Hi, Anna. Um, so, Willie Walsh striking quite an optimistic tone there uh, that we won't see any of those baggage nightmares. Um, so that's pretty re- reassuring to Europeans. Well, we certainly hope not. They also actually have uh, doubled their profit forecast for the global airline industry this year. They're expecting airlines to bring in $10 billion in profit. That said, Willie Walsh did say that profits are going to be, and I quote, wafer thin for airlines. One of the big things they face, one of the main topic areas here this year, and frankly every year of late, has been sustainability and what this sector is going to have to do to reach their net zero target by 2050. Now, a huge part of the goal is to bring in sustainable aviation fuel. They think they will make up 65% of the reductions in emissions for 2050. But Max, right now, SAF, as it's called, actually only accounts for 0.1% of global jet fuel around the world. And looking at some stats here, in order to get it where it needs to be by 2050, there needs to be an investment of $1.45 trillion. So some way off. And actually, this morning, Richard Quest spoke to the CEO of Qatar Airways. And it was very interesting to hear that he doesn't believe the sector can actually reach that net zero goal. In fact, he dismissed it as a bit of a PR exercise. That aside, that is the main topic of conversation so far, I would say, at IATA and lots of panels on the stage behind me discussing how to get there. Max? He was talking about um, potentially not being able to fly over France. Obviously, the big issue at the moment is flying and avoiding any of the issues related to the Ukraine-Russia crisis. Yes, the closure of Russian airspace has, of course, made some routes for certain airlines extremely long-winded. It means that you're burning a lot more fuel, which is terrible for emissions. It's also terrible for costs. Uh, And it means you've got more hours to fill for cabin crews. So ultimately, it means that for some flight routes taking longer, having to circumnavigate Russian airspace, you're looking at a much more expensive flight indeed. And for some airlines, and I was speaking to the CEO of Finnair earlier today, that's been hugely impactful for their business model. For Finnair, very much Helsinki provided a great shortcut from passengers from Europe to Asia via Helsinki. But given the closure of Russian airspace, well, that means they have to go a very long way around. Take a listen to what he had to say. Huge impact. I mean, basically, the Russian airspace closure uh, smacked right into the middle of our strategy just when we were coming out of the pandemic. And we have needed to change more than ever before in the 100-year history of Finnair. For example, we introduced a completely new geographically balanced network, keeping our foothold in Asia but pivoting to the West and also introducing Middle East uh, as a new long-haul traffic category. And with that, we were able to keep our European network. 
went on to discuss the uneven playing field. He mentioned Chinese airlines, which are able to do the route from Asia through to Europe, but flying through Russian airspace, which, of course, he cannot. And lots of other airlines do fly through Russian airspace, lots of the Middle Eastern carriers and many of the big Asian carriers. So that is one of the big uh, talking points here. And what's so interesting, Max, about these big summits, particularly this one each year, is it brings the CEOs of all of these different airlines discussing all of these different issues, many of which they disagree on. So you get some pretty robust debate going on. Max? Okay. Anna Stewart uh, there at IATA. Thank you for joining us for that. We'll be back in just a moment. Nikki Haley taking some big swipes at Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis during last night's CNN town hall. The Republican presidential hopeful sharply criticised her party's frontrunners. Haley faced tough questions over red flag gun laws, a federal abortion ban and other hot button issues. CNN's chief national affairs correspondent Jeff Zeleny has more. I'm in this to win it. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley seeking to elevate her candidacy for president by calling for consensus on polarizing issues like abortion. I think we can all agree on banning late-term abortions. I think we can all agree on encouraging adoptions and making sure those foster kids feel more love, not less. At a CNN town hall in Iowa, she broke with two Republican frontrunners on key foreign policy issues like Russia's invasion of Ukraine. You can't be trustful of a regime that goes in and tries to take away people's freedoms. And for them to sit there and say that this is a territorial dispute, that's just not the case. To say that we should stay neutral, it is in the best interest of America. It's in the best interest of our national security for Ukraine to win. We have to see this through. We have to finish it. She called out Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' legal battle with Disney as hypocritical. He went and basically gave the highest corporate subsidies in Florida history to Disney. But because they went and criticized him, now he's going to spend taxpayer dollars on a lawsuit. Haley also said former President Donald Trump and DeSantis have not been straight with voters about the fiscal solvency of Social Security and other programs. I think it's important to be honest with the American people. We are in this situation. Don't lie to them and say, oh, we don't have to deal with entitlement reform. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. It's the reality. I'm always going to tell the truth. Is it going to hurt? Yes. At 51, Haley has said she would bring a generational change to the White House. Asked whether she believed she would experience sexism as a female candidate, she said this. So none of my jobs have ever had a line going to the women's bathroom, ever. (laughs) But she drew applause when she said it was time to break the presidential glass ceiling. I'm a big fan of women. We balance, we prioritize, we know how to get things done. I mean, honestly, we've let guys do it for a while. It might be time for a woman to get it done. The town hall put an exclamation point on a busy weekend of campaigning in the state that opens the Republican contest early next year. Well, hello, with DeSantis joining some of his Republican rivals as they shook hands and introduced themselves to party activists. There is no substitute for victory, and we need to dispense with the culture of losing that has beset the Republican Party in recent years. Trump was the only major candidate who declined an invitation to Senator Joni Ernst's annual roast and ride, where motorcycles and barbecue come with the side of politics. Yet the former president looms large over the presidential race, 
and sits at the center of the choices facing Republicans as the campaign intensifies. What's the balance in your party, do you think, of people who want to turn the page and move forward versus uh, turn back to Donald Trump? I think there are a lot of folks that want to move forward. I know that President Trump has a great base here. It, it is strong. But at the same time, people don't want to hear about what has happened in the past because we've had two years of a Biden administration that is just destroying our nation. Now, Sony's latest animated outing, uh, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, dominated the U.S. box office over the weekend, faring much better than the film's character. My name is Miles Morales. I'm Brooklyn's one and only Spider-Man. And things are going great. Oh, yeah. You were supposed to be here at five. All right, whatever. Whatever? Wow. Whatever? So are you like a... A sequel to 2018's Into the Spider-Verse. The movie follows a new spider... Spider-Man fighting alongside heroes from across the multiverse. The film made more than $120 million in the U.S. over the weekend. That makes it the largest opening of the season so far and the second largest of the year. That's it for the show. Thanks for joining me. Uh, Connect the World with Becky is next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.